Welcome to Fishing Forward, a podcast inspired by fishermen for fishermen that focuses on health, safety, and staying ship shape in the commercial fishing industry. Fishing Forward is brought to you by the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety and by the Coastal Roots Radio Team at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada. I'm your co-host, Hannah Harrison. And I'm Phil Loring. In this podcast, we're exploring how fishermen can be thought of as professional fishing athletes. That is that the nature of their work demands the same high level of mental focus, training, and physical acuity that one might expect from a professional sports athlete. Throughout this series, we're using that lens to understand the many facets of fishermen's minds, bodies, and well-being, and we're digging deep into tough questions around issues that are critical to the fishing industry. In this episode, we're wrapping up our story arc on sleep by exploring how sleep deprivation and sleep disorders, like insomnia, impact our brain's decision-making abilities, particularly when it comes to risk-taking. We also hear from a fisherman who has survived many risky situations and now helps other fishermen prepare physically and mentally for similar scenarios. Just a quick heads up about our content this week. We're going to be discussing trauma, PTSD, and you'll be hearing some pretty harrowing stories about emergencies at sea, and some listeners might find these a little disturbing. We'll give you a heads up again later in the episode before we get to that part. In the meantime, we've gathered some resources for those who may need to reach out for some help, and you can find those in the show notes of this episode. My name is Sean Drummond. I'm a professor of clinical neuroscience at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, Very broadly speaking, I am uh, a sleep researcher and uh, my interests uh, are pretty diverse. They range from uh, the basic cognitive neuroscience of sleep and sleep deprivation, uh, all the way up to the interaction between sleep and mental health uh, and how to treat both of those things complementary. I started out my conversation with Dr. Drummond by asking him to broadly outline the relationship between sleep and mental health. So what we know is that sleep and mental health have a very bi-directional relationship. Uh, That is, if you develop a mental health problem, it will often start to disrupt your sleep. Um, And if you have a sleep problem, it puts you at much greater risk of developing a mental health problem down the road, even if you have no history of the mental health problems. And in particular, uh, having insomnia or having obstructive sleep apnea put somebody at greater risk, particularly of developing things like depression, uh, anxiety, substance use disorders, and if you're exposed to a trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder. So the cause of the bidirectional relationship is probably a little different depending on which direction you're talking about. And so the develop of a mental health disorder leads to sleep difficulties um, is probably partly psychological and probably partly neuroscience. And so, for example, if you develop depression, um, the nighttime when you are alone and it's quiet and you have nothing but your thoughts is a really good time to start to ruminate about all those things that depress you. And that is then going to make it more difficult to fall asleep. And similarly, um, from an anxiety perspective, lying alone in the dark, quietly in your bed is a really good time to start to think about all the things that make you anxious. And that tends to create physiological arousal, which then is going to interfere with your ability to fall asleep. The other direction, I have a sleep problem, and that puts me at greater risk of developing a mental health problem. 
uh, again, can be both psychological and physiological. So from a psychological perspective, for example, if you have chronic insomnia, right, the very definition of insomnia is you have a hard time sleeping. Usually you have a hard time sleeping for biological reasons, but it does mean that you are lying there awake in the middle of the night with nothing better to do but ruminate. And we know that in the middle of the night, our frontal lobes, so the part of the brain that's in charge of logic and reason and uh, tamping down the emotional response, that part of the brain is basically turned off in the middle of the night. And so now you're awake and have nothing better to do but think, but the part of the brain that thinks rationally is off. And so the emotional centers take over and the memory centers take over and you can start to really ruminate. And then depending on the content of those thoughts, it can drift you down towards depression or it can drift you towards anxiety, for example. Wow. So I guess that explains why everything can sometimes seem worse when you're laying awake at night. This makes me wonder why humans experience insomnia at all, since it seems like it's not really doing our brains any favors. Yeah, I had that same question. And Dr. Drummond explained that our understanding of insomnia is actually still a bit of a question mark. What we do know is that the one of the major drivers behind chronic insomnia, the inability to either fall asleep or stay asleep, is an impaired homeostatic sleep drive. And let me sort of back up and explain that for a second. So um, sleep is, is a homeostatic process, just like appetite is. And what that means is the longer our brains go without sleep, the more we need sleep. And eventually, if we stay awake long enough, our brains will be completely overwhelmed with the need for sleep and we'll just crash. Right? Anybody who's been awake for 36, 48 hours knows that eventually the sleepiness just overwhelms you and you're out no matter what you do. What happens through a whole series of events in, in chronic insomnia is that A, the buildup of the need for sleep is slower. So over the course of a 16-hour day, somebody with insomnia doesn't build as much sleep need as a good sleeper does. And on top of that, people with insomnia often do things all day long that chip away at their sleep need so that um, even when they are building it, they are... Um, not maintaining it because they're actually paying off some of their sleep debt during the day rather than waiting till nighttime to go to sleep and pay it all off at once. When Dr. Drummond refers to things that impair the sleep drive, what is he talking about? That's a really good question. These are behaviors like sleeping in after a bad night's sleep, taking a nap in the middle of the day, going to bed early because you slept badly the night before. And that last one probably sounds a little counterintuitive because it often does work the first night that you try it. By the time you try this a third time or a fourth time, you're no longer able to fall asleep. You don't have enough sleep debt to, to fall asleep early. So you end up lying in bed awake, tossing and turning, wishing you could fall asleep, which then just leads to frustration, which then makes it harder to fall asleep because now you're frustrated and annoyed and angry and you've got all of these negative emotional responses. And that's really when the cycle starts to take off and the insomnia starts to develop a life of its own. I want to come back to what Dr. Drummond said earlier about how our brains are more emotional and less logical at night. That's one thing when you're asleep or laying in bed, but what impacts might that state have on the brain of somebody who is awake and working, say, sitting a wheel watch? I also wondered that. Are all shift workers walking around with their logic centers out on break? 
Well, to understand what's happening here, we have to remind ourselves that the human body's processes, that's everything from temperature to sleep, operate on a 24-hour cycle. Then, if tonight you've got the night shift, the rhythm, your body's rhythm does not adjust particularly quickly. And so it's still going to be at a low point at 5 a.m. tomorrow morning, even though you've stayed awake all night long. And so, yes, at three, when you're awake trying to figure out what to do, the brain's metabolism will look closer to being asleep than it will to being wide awake. And therefore, all of the problems associated with being awake in the middle of the night will be there. The problems that occur in the middle of the night, probably the most ubiquitous one is going to be concentration, attention difficulties. So it'll be harder to focus. It'll be particularly hard to focus for longer periods of time. And here by longer, I'm really talking 8, 10, 12 minutes. So really not even that long when it comes right down to it. But sustaining that focus on an individual point is really difficult, um, either when we're sleep deprived or in the middle of the night, like we're talking about now. So that's probably the first thing that happens. And of course, if you can't concentrate and focus, there's a lot of downstream problems associated with your ability to think and solve problems. Dr. Drummond's research group has also shown that decision-making, particularly when considering multiple pieces of information at once, becomes much harder when we're sleep-deprived or when our circadian rhythms are out of whack. One of the things that we've shown is that it's hard to consider multiple pieces of information when you're making a decision, which I'm sure fishermen are faced with lots of input all of the time that they have to make decisions with. Uh, And what we see is that people tend to pick one kind of easy to understand and process piece of information and use that to make the decision while ignoring all of the the nuance and the and the maybe more complex information that that's being given to them because it's too hard to process that kind of information in the middle of the night. We also see that risk taking changes um, uh, again either if you're sleep deprived or if it's the middle of the night and your circadian rhythms are, are at a low point people may be more or less willing to take risk at that point than they are in the middle of the day when they're completely well-rested. The consequences of being more or less willing to take risk are actually kind of unpredictable because risk in and of itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes you need to take risk in order to get the reward. Um, But the fact that you're going to make a different risk-based decision in the middle of the night than you do in the middle of the day, that in and of itself is a problem. Dr. Drummond mentioned consequences there. Do we know much about how shift work style working hours affects our ability to predict or evaluate consequences to risk-taking? So it turns out that research hasn't explored this question much in the context of shift work, but in the context of sleep deprivation, such as pulling an all-nighter, researchers have been able to detect some change. And what we know is that people in that kind of context, sleep-deprived, are um, more likely to anticipate a reward. So they're more likely to anticipate that a risk is going to pay off. And they're less sensitive to, to the punishment of the risk not paying off. So if it goes badly, they don't process that in, with the same emotional valence, the same emotional strength as they normally would. So it doesn't affect their, their next decision as much, the fact that, that the first decision kind of got screwed up. Um, So they're more likely to expect it to work. And then when it doesn't work, they're less affected by that negative information. But the interesting thing is it depends on how the risk is framed. And so if if you're thinking about the risk of I'm trying to gain this certain thing by taking the risk, you actually lead often 
that sleep deprivation leads to a different effect than if you frame it as I'm trying to take a risk in order to mitigate a loss. So it might be the exact same decision, but if you frame it as I'm trying to maximize my gain versus I'm trying to mitigate the loss, then sleep deprivation does different things to it. And so if you are trying to mitigate a loss or prevent a loss, people are more likely to take more risk when they're sleep deprived. So they'll take a little bit more risk in an effort to prevent the, a negative consequence. And for if they're trying to maximize gains, people will often take a little bit less risk um, because they, they think, well, I'm going to, if I take this lower risk decision, I'll still gain something. So I'm going to go with that rather than take greater risk in effort to try to get a bigger gain. So it, it, it's interesting in that how you think about the risky decision has an influence on how sleep deprivation is going to impact you. So let's talk now about something we heard earlier, about how sleep deprivation relates to fear-based disorders like anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Now, certainly not everyone experiences PTSD, but it's worth knowing that something like 75% of adults will experience a traumatic event in their lives, and about 50% will experience more than one. So in a high-risk industry like commercial fishing, it's important to understand how our relationship with sleep may be setting fishermen up to handle a traumatic event. The first thing to know is that fear-based disorders are characterized by abnormal processes in the brain. Let's hear an example of what that means. And so let me try to make a concrete example. If I get in a car accident and then uh, I start to develop PTSD-like symptoms, then it probably means every time I get in the car, I'm going to have a fear-based response because I'm going to remember the car accident that was you know, leading to a major injury. And I'll probably also generalize that fear. So it's not just cars, but now maybe it's motorcycles. And it's not just being in the car, but maybe it's just walking out to the parking lot and seeing the car is what starts to make me feel really bad. The way that we get over that sort of fear-based um, uh, fear based disorder is through a process called extinction. And so generally what has to happen is that we have to learn, we have to relearn the car isn't in and of itself scary. I can be in the car and most of the time I'm going to be safe. So you have to unlearn the car equals fear association. That's called extinction. The reason most people who get in a car accident, for example, don't develop PTSD is this fear extinction process just happens normally. And therefore, the person doesn't develop PTSD and everything's fine. Now, here's where sleep comes in. It turns out that getting restorative sleep is crucial to this natural extinction process in our brains. What we now know is that in order for this unlearning of the fear to occur, you have to have intact, healthy REM sleep. REM sleep is the stage of sleep in which we do our dreaming. So you have to have intact, healthy dreaming sleep in order to be able to unlearn fear. If your REM sleep is, if there's too little of it, if it's too broken up and fragmented and not good quality, then you're going to have a much harder time unlearning fear. Now, ironically, what happens is when we start to develop anxiety disorder or we get exposed to a trauma, that often that experience disrupts our sleep and it disrupts our sleep in a way that disrupts REM sleep. 
that disrupted REM sleep makes it harder to unlearn the fear and therefore recover from the PTSD or the anxiety disorder. So it becomes a, essentially a positive feedback loop that is almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so the way that clinically what we have to do is to try to fix somebody's REM sleep so that either they can naturally recover or they can benefit more from a treatment that is meant to, to treat the anxiety disorder or the PTSD. So if I'm understanding this right, if someone does experience a traumatic event, but they have a job that's tough on their sleep cycle, that could really inhibit their ability to heal from any fear-based disorder they might develop. Unfortunately, yes. Here's Dr. Drummond again explaining what that looks like in the real world. You know, we believe that that is one of the reasons why uh, professions characterized by shift work have a much higher rate of PTSD and other anxiety disorders. So um, emergency personnel, first responders, military, um, all those folks are characterized by a lot of shift work. They have a high rate of being exposed to traumatic events because of their work. And then their rate of PTSD is greater than you would expect it to be given the number of traumas they're exposed to. And we think that is because their sleep is just naturally screwed up by their job and the, and the shifts they have to do on their jobs. And thinking back to where we were talking about insomnia, it turns out that sleep disorders like insomnia or sleep apnea may also set you up for developing PTSD. One of the things that we also know is that if you have, and I think I said this earlier, if you have insomnia or you have obstructive sleep apnea, then you're exposed to a traumatic experience, you're much more likely to develop PTSD than somebody who does not have a sleep disorder when they're exposed. We believe that the reason for that is both sleep apnea and insomnia disrupt REM sleep in exactly the right way that makes somebody vulnerable to not being able to unlearn fear. Let's go now to a fisherman who can relate to these discussions of traumatic stress events, both through his experiences in the industry, as well as his background as a safety trainer for commercial fishermen. My name is Russell Kingman, and I'm a commercial fisherman here from uh, Cape Cod. Uh, I've been uh, doing a, an old school fishery for the last 12 years called Weir Fishing. And um, we've seen quite a few incidents uh over the years, uh, you know, a few on this boat, some on others. I've been in a couple of hurricanes on boats and had some uh, trying experiences with that. Um, so I'm a commercial fisherman, and as a result of all this, I became an MSIT certified uh, safety trainer, marine safety instructor. And I also uh, became a wilderness first responder, which is just basically an advanced first aid program that you learn how to respond to injuries when you know you're not going to have a doctor around for at least a couple of hours. So uh, I took that class uh, and now I teach that for the fishing partnership. So I'm a, I train for the fishing partnership, uh, both in CPR first aid and then in the other program is uh, survival at sea, cold water survival, helicopter rescue, how to use the life raft, uh, EPIRB, putting out fires, all that. So um, it just kind of evolved, and that's what I'm doing, and uh, I love it. Russell is a weir fisherman, targeting squid, butterfish, bluefish, and a variety of baitfish. Weir fishing is pretty old school, and even today it is done all by hand. 
Russell married into the fishery, but prior to that, he fished on other boats where he saw dangerous and sometimes scary days at sea. Well, today, Russell is a safety trainer for a group called Fishing Partnership Support Services, who also happened to be a partner to this podcast. His interest in safety training didn't arise until he had to take a training himself. I showed up uh, reluctantly to take this training, and about two hours into it, I thought I couldn't believe I'd never taken this before. There was a lot I didn't know. I th- you know, you just go along with what you know, and you're on a boat. Other people know things, and um, you get into uh, an emergency. You find out what you don't know um, very quickly. So I didn't think that the emergencies that I experienced uh, pushed me into training. It just evolved naturally. Um, I liked the training so much I began volunteering at the, uh, to help out, to help, you know, run the logistics and set things up. And and eventually the partnership uh, saw I was very interested and asked me if I would like to become a trainer. Uh, I was a little bit shocked, to tell you the truth, but uh, excited about the opportunity. And so uh, went out to see Seattle, uh, AMSI, which is the Alaska Marine and Safety Organization. Uh, that's kind of the... Uh, the certifier to us uh, in our training program. Went out there, they have a, like a 10-day program and you learn all the rules, you know. And it's it's so rewarding. It's such a great, uh, a great program that anyone who gets involved in it ends up really loving it. Hannah, it strikes me as interesting here that Russell calls his safety training experiences and work as a trainer rewarding. Yeah, I agree. I was also struck by that word. I think sometimes safety training is thought of as a price that must be paid in order to go fishing, sort of a a piece of red tape to slice through. But listening to Russell describe his experience as a trainer really changed my view on this. Well, there's a few things. The first thing that came to mind is that I've done so many crappy jobs in my life that this is a great one. (laughs) So um, just to be honest... Um, but the but the rewarding part is that I, I really uh, have lived this now and have uh, been through some ha- very crazy emergencies at sea, and I, I think I uh, got lucky uh, to survive them, uh, quite frankly. So there's an element of camaraderie amongst fishermen. We're kind of uh, I always think of them as cowboys. They're just out there in the elements and they're very hardworking group, very durable group. And um, when I took this training, I realized there was a lot I didn't know that would be crucial to know in an emergency. And I felt lucky that I'd had some training back in the 80s when I took one of those jobs I was describing earlier as a security guard in a hotel because I needed a job. But I got some medical training out of the deal. And when we had one of our incidences, it all came back to me and had made all the difference in the outcome, not just for me personally, but you know, the person who was badly injured and had gone overboard. It's very rewarding that way. In addition to the value of his training leading to better outcomes during emergencies, Russell also finds a lot of value in meeting commercial fishermen from all over his region. And I really love uh, meeting all the all the guys. I mean, you go all over, uh, and, and the ladies too, go all over the East Coast. We're down to Virginia this year, up to Maine, and um, to go to different fishing communities, you meet the 
the, just the greatest people you'll ever hope to meet in the fishing community. So it's, it's so rewarding that way. So I'm curious what Russell is seeing from his vantage point as a trainer in terms of fishermen's attitudes towards safety and safety preparedness. Is it red tape? Or are people interested beyond the necessities of the industry? Russell says that, especially over the last 10 years, there seems to be a culture shift in fishermen embracing the safety aspects of the industry, which gives Russell a sense of optimism for the future. You'd be surprised. Um, Fishermen, uh, and I'm not one of these kinds of fishermen because, you know, we're talking about a guy who's running like a hundred foot boat. I mean, what a responsibility that is. 50 guys on the boat. These uh, these captains are amazing. They uh, they learn everything. They're self taught. They come to our program and then they take it to the next level. You know, they they go back. They're like Olympic athletes, and they go back to their boat and they improve their game. And uh, so I think there's a great interest in in safety and training. Uh, people who've been uh, fishermen for any length of time have seen seen what can happen, whether it's weather or a, a health incident or an injury with the equipment. Um, and they're into it. I think where, where it's a little harder to reach is just in the younger uh, group, just like I was, I never took a safety program. I didn't think I needed it. I was going to live forever and ever. And, um, plus I knew how to swim, right? So I'm all set. You know, earlier in this episode, we were talking about trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder, and we've learned that certain aspects of jobs like commercial fishing such as abnormal sleep patterns, can make fishermen more prone to experiencing PTSD after trauma. I imagine this is especially important given the sometimes high-risk nature of the job. Yes, and given that Russell is involved in training people to deal with that worst-case scenario, I asked him to explain this very thing. How are commercial fishermen dealing with trauma if and when they experience it? You know, fishermen don't really talk about trauma too much because... Uh, once they open up that can of worms, uh, they don't know if they can close it back up. Uh, but it comes up in every training. And I think, I mean, I think I'm just open uh, to hearing about it. I've had my own experiences with trauma and post-traumatic stress syndrome. And I can, they can talk to me. I can talk to them. We share things. And it's just, uh, it's just being supportive of people who have been through uh, so much more than anyone will ever know. You know, it's uh, like I said, they go offshore, no one knows what goes on out there and not in a negative way or a secretive way, but just in like, uh, if you ever go on YouTube and look at like, you know, giant waves or, you know, you're like, oh, okay. So this is, it's serious business. People see a lot of um, tragedy and, and it's, they don't know who they can talk to. They can always talk to me because I'm, I just, uh, I care a lot. Russell says something important here about being willing to listen and understand the experiences commercial fishermen have that affect them in the long term. Here's an example, and I'll give listeners a warning here that what you're about to hear is a story of a near-death experience, which some might find a little disturbing. Yeah, we had one just uh, two days ago. Um, not not so much struggling with it, but, um, this gentleman shared, uh, we were, this is in our advanced medical training that, um, my spouse Shannon and I teach, uh, with Ed Dennehy. He shared that his sweatshirt got caught in some moving machinery and was sucking him into the machinery. Uh, you have to make a quick split second decision. He's fishing alone. 
and grabbed on, uh, put his arm through something to grab onto it to keep him thinking the sweatshirt would give way. The sweatshirt never did give way and uh, kept and pulled him and he broke his arm and it sounded like 20 places, just spun it around in circles. Um, he was bleeding to death. He'd severed an artery. He was alone. He His arm was twisted around in circles and he managed to uh, self-tourniquet himself and make a mayday call and stay conscious. Uh, it, it's just the amount of fortitude it takes to stay conscious in a situation like that is staggering. But it's life and death, and and he managed to do it. And this is just one of probably five stories from the training that happened two days ago. This is not uncommon, uh, these kinds of uh, things that people go through. And... You know, I think now I think I've been involved in five near-death experiences, uh, at least. But I know of five off the top of my head. So this is the kind of climate uh, that occurs. You know, fishing, you're more 35 times more likely to die for, as a commercial fisherman than a police officer. Uh, that's the uh, OSHA statistic. It's a very dangerous job. Um, the place you work, it never stops moving. People forget that. You're never still, you know. So if you're lifting lots of things and doing lots of heavy labor, but, you know, you're in 10-foot seas, uh, that is an added uh, both challenge and fatigue. Russell's approach to supporting fishermen who have experienced these work-related traumas is drawn from his own experiences at sea. How I approach it is based on observing my own uh, my own psychology, I guess I should say, but you know, the way things work. And so, you know, when I was on the offshore lobster boat, uh, I had seen, you know, a man fracture his skull in five places and go overboard. And uh, I got him out of the water and Shannon was there and she got 911. And then her, we all got him out of the water eventually. Um, hurricane, my father was unconscious for 10 and a half hours, was thrown across the boat. I didn't know if he was alive. There's so many things happening in an emergency. A second gets split into 500 milliseconds or something, and everything is happening in a very lucid manner. And you're actually standing between the two worlds, between life and death, and you know it. And it's a extremely stressful place to be at because you love the people you work with, and you know that you know Ernie Ernie's brother. You don't want to tell him he died. You know, like it's very stressful. Um, but really what happens to people is that uh, their sense of that the earth is a safe place to be and that, you know, you're going to have a job and you're going to go on and live a full life. That confidence that that's the case gets taken away. Everything changes in one second. One second you're talking to someone, the next minute they get hit by a 600-pound steel pole and they're sinking in the water. And... So that's like the rug gets pulled out from people because what they always assumed was fairly safe now is not safe anymore. So that's a big factor in this, is that your worldview changes suddenly. Secondly, the stresses, the trauma, and the fear, and you know all these feelings, uh, you know, maybe inferences about some kind of afterworld or God or something, 
it's all happening at once. And so that gets stored away somewhere in the psyche or in the body. And what ends up happening is it has its own place, but it never announces uh, that it's the thing that's coming to the surface. Uh, what can happen to people is any kind of anxiety or stress can travel through your system and awaken the area where these traumas are stored so that all stress and all anxiety are kind of interconnected to the worst of your trauma. And so uh, you can see, for, uh, like, for instance, in a training, a guy was being very arbitrary with me for the first day and, you know, we got along and we got to talking and eventually he told me that he hadn't slept for almost two weeks taking this course because he had lost his best friend on the boat and they had gotten to him and they were only like inches away. His hand was outstretched and his, you know, the, the man in the water's hand was outstretched and they were trying to make a connection and they were looking into each other's eyes as the man, his best friend, you know, went under the water and they never found him. My goodness, those are some harrowing stories. It really strikes me here, though, that Russell's explanation of how these traumas manifest in the body and mind is different from what we heard from Dr. Drummond earlier, though there are still some similarities as well. Yeah, Russell's explanation clearly shows how he's seen PTSD linked to anxiety and fear-based disorders. I think that last story really illustrates how essential it is for fishermen to understand that the traumas they face are not isolated to them. They are common across the industry, and no one should be ashamed to talk about the things that have happened to them in the course of this job. It doesn't come up to you as, oh, this is the loss of my best friend, or this is, you know, John getting hit by the pole. It just comes up as an, un, you know, a panic or an uncontrollable feeling. And nobody tells you it's from that. Uh, it just comes up and then you're in that space. So it's different for everybody. It depends how severe it is. Uh, we've heard about it with men who go to war. And fishermen don't tend to talk about it too much because they've got to get back on the boat. Though I think fishermen tend to understand that these risks exist out there, it's a very different thing to be aware of them than to experience them firsthand. It is, and I think it draws a bright line under the need for fishermen to balance risk with reward. In interviewing fishermen for this podcast, I've heard again and again how fishermen must walk between the risks that are inherent to the job and those that might come about due to macho attitudes or expectations that no matter how hard it gets, you've got to just tough it out. Given Russell's long career and his expertise as a safety trainer, I asked him to reflect on what he's seen with regard to balancing those kinds of attitudes. I'm seeing it now. I didn't see it in my life. It was more of a survival of the toughest, you know, like if you weren't going to make it, you weren't going to make it. And um, conditions were always demanding for everybody in every fishery. I worked in an offshore lobster boat that was grueling. Um, I haven't seen a fishery that was not grueling in my mind. So I see it changing now. Uh, we have uh, been through a long period where it was a certain way and uh, people had to be very tough and they still have to be very tough. There's no such thing as getting on a fishing boat and having it be anything like a land-based job where you get breaks and you get lunch hour and you get time off and maternity leave. And I think those things are great, mind you. You just don't have that in the, um, the way it's set up. 
just the conditions, the weather conditions, the length of uh, the length of the trip, the amount of lifting, the repetitive lifting, even when you're tired, um, and and the fact that you have to pay attention at every moment of your work because you're working around equipment that could kill you, you know. So it's it's never going to be a job for um, for some people, and you're always going to have to be willing to accept some of those things. After that, the sleep aspect, uh, 12 hours on, four hours off, that's not healthy and that's not safe. Um, so those things are starting to change uh, thanks to all the studies that are being done by all these organizations, NEC, NIOSH, this uh, Oregon State University, AMC, Fishing Partnership, all these places are, are looking at these things, uh, not because anyone wants to change how the fisheries are you can't really change some things about it but we can uh we can adjust some things so that it's better for people um and that's one sleep is one um learning how to lift properly is very important there's a lot of uh, cumulative injuries in the fisheries i mean personally i've had six surgeries myself so um i know all about that um, and everyone I know has had several surgeries and, and there again, you're still going out to work because, uh, that's what you do. So I don't think you're ever going to see the fisheries get easy, but we can make them, um, more intelligent. So for the fishermen who are dealing with trauma, what can be done? Well, neither we nor Russell are clinical experts in treating trauma or PTSD. But from his experiences, Russell shared a few approaches that have worked for him. You can talk about it a lot and it helps, but it's different for everybody. Some people can manage themselves and some people, maybe it was so traumatic for them, it's out of their control to manage at the moment. And they might have to find, you know, seek help of some sort uh, to try to uh, get a grip on on this phenomenon. So it's very complex. It's different for everyone. Uh, one thing I've noticed in myself is that I cannot fend off feelings, really. So I've turned that into a positive. I've agreed to feel everything. And uh, so when people talk to me about what's happened to them, I'm not fending it off. I'm not speculating about it. I'm not assessing it. I'm simply feeling their pain with them so that they can share that with somebody and uh, not feel alone. I think that's important for people. And if it's not, then we don't go there. But if somebody needs to go there, then I'm willing. In corresponding with Russell, something stood out to me in one of his emails. The idea of sharing rather than scaring fishermen into giving more attention and preparation to safety at sea. So to wrap up, I want to share some of his thoughts about how we talk about risk in an inherently risky industry. I've noticed, uh, you know, there's been a lot of conversations with fishermen and they might share, you know, their gratitude in some cases of like, thanks for not like scaring us to death, you know, because we got to go back on the, out on the boat, you know, like. So you, you can have that kind of um, 1960s gym coach trainer who's like, all right, man, you know, you're going to die out there if you don't do this. You know, let me show you these statistics. You know, you're, you're just going to be a statistic if you don't. And so uh, 
guys are like, geez, you know. So I watched this over time and and, and feedback from guys and 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 let's talk about it, but let's not let's not throw it around like it's a, a tactic, you know, a scare you into wearing a life jacket. What good is that? That I, I nobody learns well through um those kinds of strategies of instilling fear into people. So my feeling now is um, it is scary. There's no way to take out the scary parts about being in a hurricane on a 30-foot boat or another time I was on a 100-foot boat. It was just as scary, you know. But there's no need. I like to let the fishermen tell me what level they want to talk at, you know, about stuff. If they want to talk about it in a 100% manner and go right to the depth level of of what they feel or what they have felt and seen, that is great. I, I love that. But I want them to decide that. I don't want to be triggering people. I don't want to be uh, use that tactic of scaring people. I'd rather have them share their experience and let's find out what worked, what didn't work, and what would be a best practice in the future to either have a better outcome or to add to this good outcome, uh, you know, and, and have it be more... Productive and proactive than a tactic because we have information to share with each other. Uh, I learn just as much at every training as anyone else would learn there because everyone shares all their stories. And you know, you find, well, wow, you did that, that worked. How did you know? What did you do? You know, like, wow, that's incredible. Uh, I'll put that in the back of my mind in case I'm in that situation. So we're Constantly learning and sharing. And from that point of view, you develop a safe zone uh, with people where I'm learning and they're learning. I'm sharing and they're sharing. And we're talking about, you know, maybe some difficult subject matter, but it's in a safe zone. It's not being exploited just to prove a point or handed down to everyone so the younger guy is terrified and will, you know, listen to me. It's just a terrible tactic. So uh, just learning how to convey information in a way that it, it it's not going to traumatize people, but it's, but it's also going to help them and they can uh, take that information and keep it for themselves and, and be able to utilize it if it's ever needed. Thanks for joining us today. In this episode, you heard from Dr. Sean Drummond, Professor of Clinical Neuroscience at Monash University, and from fisherman Russell Kingman, who works with Fishing Partnership Support Services on the eastern seaboard of the United States. Fishing Forward is a production of the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety and Coastal Roots Radio at the University of Guelph. We love to hear your feedback. You can share your thoughts with us via email at fishing at necenter.org. That's fishing at necenter.org. Or you can leave us a voicemail by calling 607-221-4448. And of course, you can also visit us on the Fishing Forward podcast webpage at www.coastalroots.org forward slash fishing forward pod that we do our best to bring you accurate information and lived experiences in this podcast. Please remember that all of the health-related information presented here is the opinion of the interviewees, and it should not be interpreted as licensed medical advice. As always, talk to your physician about your own health needs and circumstances.
Fishing Forward is funded by the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety. We also receive support from the Alaska Marine Safety Education Association, Oregon State University, the Pacific Northwest Agricultural Safety and Health Center, Fishing Partnership Support Services, the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, the NORA Agriculture, Forestry and Fishing Council, the Southwest Center for Agricultural Health, Injury Prevention and Education, and the Local Catch Network. Stay sailing.